But tonight we come to uh, chapter 6, and uh, we want to just quickly review uh, what we saw in chapter 5. We, we saw last week that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, uh, God used them to stir the nation up again to start rebuilding. It had been 15 years uh, that they had gone without building. They, they just suddenly stopped about 535 B.C., and there were some reasons why they stopped. They had been greatly threatened and intimidated uh, at that time. But uh, they didn't resume. They just got kind of lethargic, never really got back on track. Fifteen years went by, time went on. And so in 520, those two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, gave their prophecies. Uh, uh, Haggai, within about a four-month span, gave his prophecies to the nation. And Zechariah, the same year, and those prophecies rebuked the leaders, uh, also the people for their uncleanness and the priest for their lack of ceremonial cleanness and not even giving any attention to that. And so uh, once they were rebuked like that, God used that to uh, be the catalyst to get them to begin rebuilding again. And so they started in 520, as you can see. In fact, we know the exact date in history. Uh, we take our calendar and superimpose it back over the old calendars, and it was actually on on our date, September the 21st of 520. So if you want to know what was going on on September the 21st of 520, there you go. But uh, the temple then was back under construction, but we saw what happened is that the governor, uh, Tetani is his name, he came and began to try to intimidate Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders and the people that were involved in the project. And uh, he, he said, who gave you the authority to do this? Uh, was there a decree given? Do you have a building permit uh, to be doing this? And then he said, we're going to take names. Uh, you know, you're building this building. And it, and it looked like a structure that might have been more than just a temple for worship. It was being built with, according to the instructions that Solomon used to build the original temple and the walls were very thick and very stable, uh, greatly reinforced, uh, stones that were so huge that they could not be carried, they had to be rolled on logs. You've probably seen uh, on television or somewhere that, that process. And so he said, I'm going to take names and I'm going to send those names to uh, Darius, uh, the king, and just see what he says about this. And so he wrote a letter, we saw that uh, there in chapter 5, wrote a letter and he sent it off, and now they're waiting to see if they can find documentation uh, on what, uh, what to do, whether to stop the building or whether Darius would give the go-ahead. It had only been 15 years, but somehow they had lost track of the history of what, what had happened, uh, the governors had. And, of course, uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua knew what was going on. Well, now they're waiting for this re reply to come back from uh, Darius. And so what you have here are some very uncertain days. Uh, it was going to take some time to deliver that letter. Uh, and then after the letter was delivered, there had to be a search made to find these documents. And so a lot of time was going by. And you can imagine how some of those people felt who had been involved in the building because their names had been taken, and they really didn't know what the future held at that point. It was an uncertain time. It's the kind of thing that could, if you let it, uh, keep you up at night where you don't uh, sleep very well and so uh, it was kind of a cloud hanging over 
their lives. And so I've given the title, uh, the, uh, the study tonight, a title, How We Can Face Uncertain Days. And we are certainly living in uncertain days. If there was anything you could describe the time that we live in, who knows what's going to happen uh, in uh, the time to come. But also, there's a reality about life, even if things were going great in the nation, there's uncertainty to life just in general. And so how do you face uncertain days? And uh, I've got, uh, I think, five headings here all together. And the first one is this, the discovery of the building permit. I gave it that title because that's really, to put it in our day, that's what they were looking for was the permission to go on with the building. But Ted and I had tried to stop them. And so now, one of the things that's interesting here, as we look at these opening verses here in, in chapter 6, is that they did not let, this time, they did not let this intimidation, these threats, stop them. And so let's just read what happened here. It says, King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And then at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. Now, a couple of things to take note of here. Uh, this place, Akmetha, as it turns out, there's a record in history that when Cyrus had issued the original decree, he had gone to the summer palace, which was in this city at that time. And he had spent the summer there, and so at the time he issued the decree, there was a record made of what he did, and that's what we're, what we're about to read. It's not the decree itself, but it's a record of the fact that he had made a decree, and it records some of what was in the decree. And so it was written uh, thus, it says in verse 2, verse 3, it says, In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, and its width, 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. And let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. And let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, uh, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. And so that was the, the summary, you might say just a summary of the decree that Cyrus had made back in 538. That's 18 years earlier that that decree had been sent out by Cyrus. And so now they've found that document and, and found documentation of it, which is, which is crucial. Now what I think about here is I think about, well, several things come to my mind. I think about, first of all, that it was just a piece of paper they were looking for throughout the entire kingdom. And, and God worked it out. It was not in the place where they might have thought it was, in the archives. It's almost like stuff that's going on in our nation now where they, <laughs> they find the, the documents uh, you know, in the summer homes of the presidents, evidently. But, but uh, at, at this time, they found the, the, the document in the summer vacation spot where Cyrus was that gave, this was, this was going to be key to everything. And so the, my thought of this is that God even the most minute details 
of our lives and of things that are going on, God is right on top of every bit of it. We don't know what all happened that God had to do to preserve that record. He had to move in the lives of people to make it still be there, but it was there, and it's a key thing. And so then, uh, Darius tells Tetna, beginning in verse 6, we see the decree of Darius now to let the work go on. He says, we found the documentation, so now the work can go on. But I want you to just look at how strong Darius is here in his instructions to Tetna. And so in verses 6 through 12, we see what he told him. It says, Now therefore, Tetni, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosni and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. So he knew what they were up to. He, he, he knew that they had taken the list of names and that they were trying to get uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and all those guys in trouble. And so he, he was sharp enough to figure out what they were doing, but he said he wouldn't have any of it. He says, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. You stay away from there. Leave these people alone, is what he's saying. Let the governor of the Jews, that's Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Now, now, just think about this. They were probably in somewhat concern, at least. You might at least use that word. They, they might have been dreading what Darius would say, thinking it's going to be bad news when, when they hear back from him. But now, he says to Tetanai, you leave them alone, you stay away from there, and let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river, this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, look at verse 9, whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now, did Darius do this because he had converted to the faith of the Jews? There was Jehovah God, now his one God, the one true living God? No. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the Persian kings, all of them were what we would call polytheist. They were polytheists. That means they worship many gods, and they believe that certain gods were over certain pieces of land, territory. And so he says, listen, I want these people to be able to worship their God so they can pray for me and my sons. It was a dangerous time to be a king because there had been a lot of assassination, a lot of attempted assassinations that had been taking place at that time. And so he says, listen, I want these people to have their religion and to be able to worship their God and he tells Tetna to leave them alone. Whatever they need, you make sure they have it. Could you imagine how sulking Tetna probably was when he went home that night? It probably chapped him big time. But we go to verse 11. He, he says, Also, as part of this decree, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let him be hanged on it. Now, 
That might make us think that it was a hanging like we think of. The actual words there in the Hebrew, or it's actually in the Aramaic here, is to be lifted up. And so the idea here is Persians were very adept at crucifixions, just like the Romans were uh, years later. And in the back of my mind somewhere, I'm thinking that the Persians were the ones who, de- who devised and designed uh, crucifixion, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But the, that what he's talking about here is crucifying them. Take a, take a timber out of his own house, uh, erect it, and let him be lifted up on it. And the idea there is of crucifixion. And let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. Boy, Darius was very strong, wasn't he? Very strong. And he said, And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, this temple, which is in Jerusalem. And then he says, I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. And so, strong words here from Darius in this new decree that he makes. Now, one of the things I want us just to think about as we go past this is that, going back to what we talked about Sunday, here's a decree from the king But we know the ultimate decree was from God, that God was sovereignly uh, working in the mind, at least, of Darius and in his heart, perhaps, to give him the insight to know what was going on here and to make this decree. Now, the third thing is the diligence of the people. Uh, Tatnai, I I guess he was going to be diligent after he read that. Uh, The governor of the region beyond the river, Shepherd. Bosnai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had said. And I think I put in the notes, I reckon so. I reckon they did. But notice also the diligence then of the leaders of the Jews and the Jewish people themselves. It says, so the elders of the Jews built, they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, Artaxerxes would not come until much later, but what Artaxerxes did was, you know, Ezra's writing this in 450, which was about 70 years after all of this had happened, 70, 75 years after it had happened. And so um, what, what he's writing about is how Artaxerxes helped to ornament the temple. Uh, He he came along much later, but he helped with gold and other things to help make it uh, more elaborate than it was in the days of Zerubbabel. Now, uh, just some things to take note of here. They completed the temple in 516. We know that. We know the exact date in history for that as well, uh, from Haggai. And that was exactly 70 years from when Solomon's temple had been destroyed um, in 586. Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586. Now here we are in 516, uh, exactly 70 years later. Altogether, it took them four years, five months, and ten days to complete the work uh, once they resumed. Uh, We see that in Haggai chapter 1. This second temple was nowhere near as glorious as Solomon's temple. We also see that in Haggai chapter 2, 
verse 3. Haggai said, you look at this temple. Those of you who saw Solomon's temple, and now you look at this temple, it looks as nothing. He said, that was in chapter 2, verse 3. He said, it looks like nothing to you compared to Solomon's temple. But there were some other features that were missing. Uh, First of all, at the dedication, Solomon had prayed at the dedication of the original temple and fire came down from heaven and consumed the the sacrifices. Nothing like that happens here at the dedication that we're about to see. And the main thing is this. There was something missing from that first temple. Do you know what it was? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. No Ark of the Covenant. It was lost and has been lost uh, ever since. Now, one of the things that I wanted us to take special note of tonight is that in spite of the fact that this temple was nowhere near as glorious as Solomon's, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, Haggai encouraged the people with this. And I won't ask us to turn there, but just listen to what he, he said. He said, this is the word of the Lord of hosts, that the glory of the temple that they had built would be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And he said, God God said this, he said, In this place I will give peace. And in my Bible I've got those words, in this place. We know what happened in history. We know that later on uh, Herod came along and remodeled the temple. It was in that same place. Probably once he finished, it took him 50 years to do his remodeling. So it was some kind of project that, that, that he had done. But it was on that same site and it was a renovation of that, of that same temple. And I believe the reason the scripture says here that it was um, gonna, the glory was going to be greater than it had been in Solomon's temple. Because who came to that temple? The Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came into that temple, I don't know of all of the dignitaries who may have come to the temple that Solomon had built, but there had never been anyone like Jesus Christ in the temple that, uh, that he came to. And then there's something else that I think that we need to take note of of those words in, in Haggai. And it's this. It says, In this place... And you could read right over those words and not really think much about it. But what it's, what's being said there is that that place, the Temple Mount, the area around it, there's something about that land and that place in Israel that is very precious to God Himself. And I believe that this prophecy that Haggai made is, yes, it's looking ahead to the time of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus, but it's looking beyond that to the time when He would come and there would be peace on earth at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that temple, there's, there's, there's some debate about this, but I believe that that temple will be rebuilt there in that site again uh, in that day and that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself will rule from Jerusalem. Now, Let's go on. The next point is the dedication of the temple. We see that in verses 16 through 18. And we simply see there that the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 
400 lambs and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And then it says they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. Now, we might think that that number is a lot. I mean, it seems to us that 100 bulls, 200 rams and 400 lambs, that's a lot of sacrificing going on until you go back and look at what happened when Solomon <laughs> dedicated the temple. And I think I put that in the notes. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Not even close. And so there was something that was altogether in comparison to what some of these people had seen in previous days. They were living in the days of small things. These were just, it was not anything like the glory that they had perhaps seen. Now, of course, they weren't there at the, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, but the, the temple itself was uh, greater. Solomon's temple was greater in its appearance. And they had the record, of course, that they had read about the dedication ceremony. And by comparison, the dedication that they uh, had was, which was much less. And then the final thing I've got here is that at long last, after all of this struggle, uh, you know, 23 years of, uh, of waiting to, to come to completion. At long last, the temple is completed and uh, they dedicate the temple and now they're going to have the celebration of the, uh, the feast here. And let's start in verse, in chapter 6, start in verse 19. And we will finish this off. It says, The descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month, for the priest and the Levites had purified themselves. See, they had taken heed to what Haggai and Zechariah had rebuked them for their lack of thought about being purified and, and ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priest, and for themselves. And then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And so they already had some converts who were there who, who said, we don't want to be a part of this paganism and this uh, polytheism anymore. We want to worship the one true God, the Lord God, Jehovah God of Israel. And in verse 22 it says, They kept the feast of unleavened bread, which comes right after Passover, of course, uh, seven days with joy, and I think here's the key line in the whole section of Scripture. It says, For the Lord made them joyful. It was the Lord who made them joyful. And He turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now let's look at some conclusions here and how we can apply this uh, in our lives. How do we face uncertain days in our lives and we all are facing them whether we think about it or know about it or not uh, there's uncertainty uh, boast not yourself of tomorrow because you don't know what a day would bring forth well how do we how do we face uncertain days in our lives first thing is this we must continue to trust God for all the details of our lives both big and small God took care of all those big details, but He also knew right where that piece of paper, He knew what filing cabinet that piece of paper was in uh, there uh, 
that when it was found in that city. And we should not dread what may happen, knowing that God will be with us. Here's a great verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 41.10. It says, Fear not, for I am with you. This is God speaking. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a hymn in our hymnal. It's hymn number 88. God moves in a, myster- in, uh, in a mysterious way. And it says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. This is the third verse, I believe, of that hymn. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And so we, we just have to trust God, all, trust Him for all the details and not dread the future. Secondly, we must continue to diligently obey what we know of God's will. Um, you know, they, that's what they did. They, they, didn't, they didn't let, this time, they did not let the threats and the intimidation cause them to stop, but they diligently kept working. Colossians three twenty three and 24 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And so what we have to do in days of uncertainty is just continue to do the part of God's will that we know. We know what He's already told us. We may not know what the future holds and exactly how things will work out, but we know what He's told us to be busy doing. Thirdly, we must not despise the day of small things. He knows what he's doing. Zechariah 4.10, this was part of his prophecy. He says, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then finally, we must find our joy in the Lord each day. And remember that perfect joy is our destiny. Oh, if we could just keep that in mind, that perfect joy is, is our destiny. Nehemiah said, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And then in Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, For his anger is but for a mom- moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning.